Well, grab your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is where we're going to be this evening. Um, those of you who don't know me, Brandon introduced me earlier, but my name is Joe Hayhurst. I am the family pastor here, which means primarily I am teaching kids, but every once in a while they let me out of the children's building and allow me to teach adults, and I'm really glad to be here with you this evening. So Lamentations, you guys are going through a bird's eye view of the 66 books of the Bible in a very clever title of Roots 66. I really like that. Whoever came up with that, that was good. So a bird's eye view of these different books, but to introduce Lamentations, I kind of wanted to do an orbital view or a satellite's view of the entire Old Testament up to this point, just to get a running start to really help you understand the gravity of what we're dealing with here in the book of Lamentations. So I want to tell you a story. It starts with the calling of a pagan man from Ur named Abram, who was promised by God certain blessings, promises of blessings of a land with specific borders, a great nation with many people, where all the earth would be blessed through him. It was ultimately a promise of, in Genesis 17, from God that where God told him, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that is a familiar refrain that goes throughout the whole Bible. I will be your God, you shall be my people. The promise passed from Abraham to his son Isaac and on to Jacob. Jacob, of course, had 12 sons. And they grew into a mighty nation. 70 of Jacob's descendants went down to Egypt where they incubated for 400 years. They were enslaved there, but they grew into a mighty nation of about a million people. And in their enslavement, God remembered the promise. They cried out to him for a rescuer, and God sent a man named Moses to deliver them. And Moses came with a message to remind them of the promise and to tell them in Exodus 6, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God delivered the people from the hand of Pharaoh and gave them the Mosaic law, a law to show them that they desperately need a savior. They desperately need a rescuer and to show them that they need to put God on display. That was their mandate to stay in the land, stay, obey, and display. Our mandate is to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ the Israelites' mandate, when they made it into the promised land, was to proclaim the great blessings that come through obedience to Yahweh. That they were to stay, trust Yahweh, obey him. He would be their God and God, and they would be his people. And so as they approached the promised land, God gave them one more reminder in Deuteronomy 28 that obedience would lead to blessing and disobedience would lead to curses, defeat, and exile. And in Deuteronomy 29, 13, he says, if you will but obey me, I will be your God. You will be my people. And they agreed with a wholehearted amen, and they marched into the promised land and immediately disobeyed. They didn't drive out the inhabitants in the land of Canaan, but they refused to do that. And just like God said would happen, they began to worship these foreign gods. Disobedience and idolatry happened. This led to a cycle of disobedience for 300 years in the book of Judges, crying out for deliverance, God's faithfulness uh, in spite of their disobedience, and that cycle of disobedience 
crying out to God. God's deliverance happened for 300 years, but God was patient. Finally, the people rose up and they said, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And God said, no, 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 wait. I will be your God. I will be your king and you will be my people. And they said, we don't want you as king. We don't want you as God. We want to be like the other nations. So God said, you'll regret it, but okay. And so he gave them kings, many of whom, almost all of whom, were selfish and evil. There were very few good kings, but one of them was King David. David loved God with all his heart, and so God gave him the Davidic covenant. That one day, there would be a king in David's line who would reign forever and ever. And after David, many kings came and the kingdom quickly deteriorated because the people forgot their God. They disobeyed his word and they worshiped idols. But God loved the people. He loved his people and so he patiently sent prophet after prophet to warn them and call them back. Warn them and remind them of the blessings that would come through obedience. And over and over, if you read through the prophets, there's that same familiar statement. I will be your God. You will be my people if you will but return and repent. But the people and the kings rejected God and they continued their disobedience and they stoned the prophets. Hundreds of years of disobedience and idol worship eventually came to a head with a wicked man named Manasseh who was their king. He established a state-run worship of Baal, put up altars and idolatry, false deities in the Jerusalem temple, practiced child sacrifice, Yet God was still patient and he sent one last man for God's final warning. You learned about that last week, Jeremiah. Seven times Jeremiah cried out this familiar statement, I will be your God. You will be my people, says the Lord, if you will but return and repent. But they scorned and rejected the message. So finally in 2 Kings 21, 13, God's patience ran out. And he promised to obliterate Jerusalem turn it inside out, render it useless, and remove the people. So sad. And in 587 BC, a massive war machine arrived at the gates. It laid siege to the city and bef before leveling it to the ground. And that is the backdrop of this book. So you can imagine the heartache of Jeremiah, the author of this book, as he sits on a hill and looks out at the devastation of Jerusalem, paradise lost, an opportunity squandered. They were to be Yahweh's people. He was to be their God. And so Jeremiah sits and he weeps and he writes five poems as if to lament, how did it come to this? So the theme of Lamentations is lament over Jerusalem. The date of its writing it was around 586 B.C., sometimes shortly after the final stage of the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem. The title, of course, is Lamentations, um, which got its name from a Latin rendering of a Hebrew word that means loud cries or dismay. A lament is a passionate expression of sorrow and grief, and that's exactly what this book is, a passionate expression of of sorrow and grief. We've already talked about the author, but he was Jeremiah, who we learned last week was the weeping prophet. He was the man that God sent to give the one last final warning, and now 
after the warning, he sits above the city as it's destroyed and he laments. Jeremiah was an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem. It's likely written shortly after, the, after that, after the Babylonian invasion, temple destroyed, king's family killed, the king's eyes gouged out, he's taken into captivity, people killed, taken captive, city laid in ruin. For 40 years, Jeremiah had prophesied that judgment was coming and he was ridiculed and mocked and eventually thrown into a pit for preaching doom. But despite the people's obstinance, despite their rejection, he still responds here with sorrow and compassion for their suffering. So this is not an I told you so book. This is an anguish to the fact that they didn't listen. If we look at the style and structure of this book, it's Hebrew poetry, and it's written in an acrostic form. So there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The first four poems, the first four chapters, are written as an acrostic, which means that each verse begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So why an acrostic? Well, a couple of reasons. You might have already looked at this when you looked at the Psalms and and, uh, some of the other Hebrew poetry books. But acrostics were written to aid in memory, and they were also written to give kind of a symbol of completeness as a sort of A to Z on a subject. Okay, so we can look at the book of Lamentations as an A to Z, a complete exhaustive expression of grief and lament. So the last notable characteristic of this structure and style is that it has personification. Okay, the nation here is portrayed as several different things, personified, an abandoned woman, a persecuted man and a sick body. And those run throughout these poems. So we, of course, don't have time to examine every verse, but I just want to give you a sampling of each one of these poems so that you get an idea and a bit of a taste of the lament that Jeremiah is is giving us. And we're going to do this as we go through the outline of this book. So our first poem, as we look at this anguish from different angles... The first part of our outline is the first chapter, the first poem, and it is a, the ruin of Jerusalem. The ruin of Jerusalem. So the poem begins, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. She has no one to comfort her among all her lovers, All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. So following uh, the destruction of the city, Jerusalem is likened, Israel is likened to an abandoned woman, a wife whose husband is dead, A princess becomes slave. A friend whose loved ones have stabbed them in the back. And in here, friends are are a euphemism or a a synonym for those countries that they put their faith and their hope and their trust in rather than Yahweh. They've abandoned them. Also likened to a woman whose loved ones have abandoned her. So the idea is that moment of heartache when you've spurned the love of your father and the wisdom that he's given, found yourself in squalor, you finally realize your mistake when it's too late and all you can do is cry and lament. 
Yahweh would have blessed and protected his people as a loving husband prepares or provides for and cares for his blessed wife. But rather than trusting God, rather than crying out to him, they sought protection from Egypt and Assyria when Babylon came knocking. Rather than trusting the loving, powerful father, they turned to fickle human kings, turned to them for love and protection. And now, verse 2 says, there's no one to comfort her. A statement repeated five times in this first poem is, no one is there to wipe away the tears. They trusted in the wrong thing. So ask yourself, who do you trust in? Is it something fickle? Where is your hope? Is it the love of other people? Who do you turn to in your distress? After the destruction of the city, Jerusalem and its people ultimately felt destitute, abandoned, and they realized that this was their own doing and they have no excuses. And the poem ends with confession and a prayer for comfort because perhaps Yahweh will relent. Verse 20 says, See, O Lord, for I am in distress. My heart is greatly troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. It's a confession of sin and an appeal to God's character because he abounds in steadfast love. So the theme of the second poem is the wrath of God. The Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem is well documented in Scripture. Four chapters are dedicated to this event. It's a very important event in the life of the Jews. It's described in Jeremiah 39, Jeremiah 52, also in 2 Kings 25 and 2 Chronicles 36. God wants you to understand how horrible it is when his wrath is unleashed. The physical, psychological, and spiritual devastation in Jerusalem in 586 BC was horrific and unimaginable. Think of your worst nightmare, and it doesn't even come close. City walls torn down, palaces and homes burned, people killed, taken into exile. Perhaps worst of all, God's temple burned to the ground, and the implements used in the worship of Yahweh carted away to Babylon to aid in pagan ceremonies. The wrath of God poured out on an unrepentant, sinful, and disobedient people. And the entire first half of this second poem gives the fact that these horrible conditions are a result of God's will. Verse 1, how the Lord has scattered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. In his fierce anger, verse 3, he has cut off all the strength of Israel. Verse 5, he has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has destroyed its strongholds. Summarized in verse 17, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word. Trimper Longman says, This poem expresses the emotion following the discovery, the emotion following the discovery that the power behind the carnage was not the Babylonian war machine, but God himself. The wrath of God poured out on unrepentant sinners because when God's judgment comes, it is swift and it is very thorough. So the third poem is a request for mercy. Third poem is a request for mercy. And you'll notice that this this third poem has 66 verses rather than 22. 
Okay, but 22 times 3 is what? 66. This is still an acrostic, and three verses in a row will have a Hebrew alphabet, and then it will begin the next set of three after the, the first set of three. So it's a triple acrostic. So this is the, the, the third chapter is the structural and literary center of this book. Okay, the building up of God's wrath to a particular moment in these five poems, and it is God's mercy. The chapter begins much like the others, more lament, describing the predicament, but the mood changes. There's a dramatic change in Jeremiah's thinking. It's as if his, his pondering on the sorrow has driven him to meditate on God's mercy and God's grace. Look at verse 17 to 24. Here are these first few. We have the lament of this dire situation continues. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my, my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and it's bowed down within me. And here's the turning point. It's here that he kind of slaps himself awake. Have you ever had to do that? Been in such despair that you threaten to be sucked into depression, having forgotten happiness. That's where Jeremiah is. Hope has perished, dwelling in bitterness. He is bowed down, and then he makes an active and very remarkable decision to change his thoughts. He starts dwelling on things above, not on things on earth. He starts to talk to himself. He re rehearses God's character. He knows his Bible, and he goes back to the character of God. This I recall to my mind, he says in verse 21, therefore I have hope. What is it that he calls to his mind? God's character, the Lord's loving kindness, his steadfast love indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. Sometimes, my friends, you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to make a mental pivot from your problems to God's faithfulness because life is filled with disappointments and sorrows. Hopefully nothing on the scale that Jeremiah has endured, but the Christian life is not an easy life. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, what are they going to do to you? They're going to persecute you. Paul pleaded with the Lord to have an affliction removed. Three times he pleaded that the Lord would remove it. And what was the Lord's response? Ultimately, no. My grace, he said, is sufficient for you. So no matter your struggle, Christ is enough. He is all you truly need. So when you are filled with despair, when you're weighed down with bitterness and affliction, remember God's promises that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he will raise you on the last day. On your darkest day, if you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, which is a euphemism for the worst possible day imaginable, the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. Why? Because he is with you. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. So in your days of bitterness and affliction, when you're weighed down, remember God's promises. Remember like Jeremiah does. You also remember God's character. God is wrath against sin and disobedience, but he is abundant in steadfast love. When he describes himself in Exodus 34, he begins with this, 
Yahweh the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth. If you doubt that for a second, all you must do is look to the cross. God's mercy and grace put on display while you were still sinners, while you are doing what the Israelites are doing, pursuing your own agenda, the idols of your heart, Christ died for you. His steadfast mercies will engender hope in your heart. So the third poem is a request for mercy based on God's character. Fourth poem in Lamentations we can think of as the review of the siege. Review of the siege. So a siege is a military operation where the enemy forces surround a town and cut it off from essential supplies, essentially starving out the town. So the purpose was to make life so miserable in the city, no food coming in, no people coming in or out, so awful for those in the town that they surrender or they have no strength to fight back. Now, in chapter 1, we looked at the ruin of Jerusalem, which related to the actual sacking and burning of the city. But before the Babylonians breached the wall, before they set fire to the city and destroyed the temple, there was an 18-month-long siege. And this siege was unimaginable in its horror. Babylon surrounded the city so nothing could get in, nothing and no one could get out, starving the people. Chapter 4, verse 6 says that Jerusalem was worse off than immoral Sodom, which was destroyed, it says, in an instant. Captures the misery in verses 9 to 10. Better are those who are killed by the sword, Jeremiah says, than those killed by hunger. For they waste away, stricken by the lack of produce from the field. Verse 10, the hands of compassionate women, not women, compassionate women, boiled their children. They became food for them. Due to the destruction of the daughter of my people, the famine so severe that women would give birth, boil their kids, and eat them. And lest we forget who is afflicting the unbelief, the disobedience, and the rejection of these people. The person afflicting, giving this siege, is the Lord himself. Verse 11, the Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. Fourth poem of Lamentations is a review of a horrible, horrible siege. And the last poem, the fifth, is a request for restoration. This fifth chapter or this fifth poem is a prayer, which is a fitting end to a lament. Because will God lead them in this state of destitution and captivity? The book closes with an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, God's permanence, God's stability. These people make no demands. They have nothing to demand. They have rejected their God. They face just punishment. But will God leave them that way? Well, Jeremiah opens with a prayer. Verse 1, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. It's a request for deliverance, a request for mercy. It, it includes confession rather than excuses. Woe, he says in verse 16 to us, for we have sinned. Restoration to relationships begins with confession of sin. And although God's judgment has been poured out, there's still hope, Jeremiah says. He requests mercy. He requests restoration based on what? Based on the fact that God is a merciful God. Based on the fact that he 
is sovereign. Verse 19, you, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. God always sits on his throne. When you are in a dire place, God is on his throne. He is sovereign. And it's because of this sovereignty that God, that Jeremiah prays for restor- restoration. Because God is in control, because God is sovereign, and because God is merciful, there's always hope. And so as Jeremiah looks out over the city, he weeps and laments for the destruction of his beloved Jerusalem and these people that he held dear. But far more than a book of sorrows and laments to Jewish people 600 years ago, this book has lasting implications for you, a lasting message for you. So let's look at four enduring truths. Four enduring truths from the book of Lamentations that will strengthen you for your walk with the Lord. You do not want to make the same mistake that the Israelites made. This book has rich reminders for you as you begin your life on your own. You begin your life apart from your parents. How are you going to respond to life's difficulties, to life's temptations? Well, let's look at four enduring truths. The first enduring truth, something you must understand, is that God always keeps his promises. Not sometimes, not most times. No, God always keeps his promises. And this is a blaring warning to you, a blaring warning to the world. Judgment is coming. God is faithful. God does not lie. This book leaves no doubt about that. God is faithful to do what he says, which is a double-edged sword. We've talked this about this a bit already, but you desperately need to understand this. God promises blessings to the obedient. He promises judgment to the disobedient. Those obedient to the gospel are promised blessing and eternal life. Those disobedient, those rejecting God, those rejecting his word, those rejecting his son have nothing but the wrath of God and his judgment to look forward to. If God did not spare judgment on his own people, people that he dearly loved, his people, what is he going to do to the nations who reject him? Well, God's wrath is coming to an unbelieving world because God does not lie. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They know the truth and they suppress the truth. If you've been paying attention at all to Tom's Revelation study, if you were paying attention at all to this past Sunday, then you know that tribulation has been promised. Judgment on a world that has rejected the God of the Bible is coming. Calamity, despair, death, and destruction on a monumental scale, so horrible that it makes the siege of Jerusalem look like a preschool play date. Just an unfortunate event that you have to endure. The truth is, guys, God always keeps his promises. He promised to destroy the world with a flood. He made good on that promise. He promised to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone, and it happened. He promised to judge Israel and destroy Jerusalem if they turned to idolatry, and he made good on that promise. We looked at the siege. We looked at the horror of a mother eating their own children. 
That is a very specific curse, specific judgment that God said 900 years before was going to happen if they rejected him. Deuteronomy 28.53, written 900 years prior, God says this, then if you reject your God, if you seek the world, then you will eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. A conditional promise given and kept. I could go on and on time after time of God's faithfulness to his word because God cannot lie. He makes no idle threats. He always keeps his promises and God's wrath will be poured out on an unbelieving world. And God's wrath will be poured out on you, yes, you, as you sit in your seat, if you reject the Son. John 3, 36, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you are not in Christ, right now, where you sit, there is nothing standing between you and an eternity in a horrible place called hell, reserved for judgment, a place that Jesus said you don't want to go to. Mark 9, 43, he said, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands and go into hell. He's saying, whatever it takes to avoid God's wrath and God's judgment, do it. Into a hell, a place of unquenchable fire, he says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He's describing darkness, a burning furnace designed for torment, a fire that burns hot but gives no light, and a worm. I have no idea what the worm does, but I don't want to find out. But if you reject the sun, there's nothing but standing, standing between you and that except one heartbeat. One beat of your heart that you are powerless to keep beating. 155,000 people die every day. So maybe you're sitting here tonight thinking, you know, I'm going to experience a bit of the world and then I'll come to Christ later. I've got a lot of living to do. Jesus said to that attitude, tonight, tonight your soul might be required of you. Romans 2.5 says, because of your hard and impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of God's wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. So God always keeps his promises. The wages of sin is death. You cannot escape your punishment for your sin because you've sinned. The wrath of God will be poured out. So what's the solution? Where is the hope? Jeremiah's hope came when he remembered the character of God and his faithfulness. Our hope is found in the promise of God. Our hope is found because God always keeps his promises. Hope is contained in the same verses we looked at. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But whoever believes the Son has eternal life. That's a promise. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, yes, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. The promise of judgment still stands. stands. The wrath of God will be poured out on sin. The question is, will it be poured out on you or has Christ already paid your wrath? Has he already drank the cup of God's wrath for you? 
1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You must repent of your sins. You must trust alone in Jesus Christ to have the wrath of God pass over you. Our hope is found because God always keeps his promises. And so when he says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. You can take that to the bank. When he says whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, that's a promise. There's no doubt about it. When Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. When Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of those that he has given me, but I will raise them on the last day. You don't have to think, well, maybe, maybe that applies to me. No, it's a sure hope. It's a steadfast conviction. It's a guaranteed result because it's not based on you. It's based on a God who cannot lie. God is faithful. So you might be asking, as we're thinking of promise, what of the promise to Israel? They were taken into captivity. What of the promise? God is not finished with Israel. God was not finished with Israel when he took them into captivity. Jeremiah knew that God is not finished with Israel as he's writing this lament. He's not lamenting the no hope. He's lamenting the destruction of the city. God had promised Jeremiah. Jeremiah had told the people in Jeremiah 29.10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you again. I will fulfill my good word to you. I will bring you back to this place. 70 years. Anybody want to hazard a guess what happened 70 years after the first stage of the Babylonian captivity? Anybody? Israel has no army. They have no king. They have no standing. They're in Babylon. They have nothing to endear themselves to the ruler. But a kingdom of Persia with a king named Cyrus defeats the Babylonians. And this king looks around and he says, Hey, Hebrews, you guys want to go back to Jerusalem? You want to rebuild the temple that Babylon destroyed? Why would he do that? Why would he allow them to return and rebuild the temple? It's simple. Because God promised it. God always keeps his promises. You might be asking, what of the king? What of the promise of the king? Well, 600 years later, a child was born in the line of David, Jesus, the Messiah, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and his kingdom reigns forever. You may ask, what of the promise of the kingdom? Well, a physical reign of the king is coming. Revelation 20 describes a thousand-year reign where, the, where Christ will rule with Israel from Jerusalem. The end of the story in Revelation 21.3, listen to this, is the familiar refrain. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. It was a promise given, and it's a promise kept because God always keeps his promises. Promise of judgment, promise of salvation and mercy and blessing. So the next enduring truth of this book is that God is enough. God is enough. He is all that you need. We talked a little bit about Lamentations 3, 21 to 25, but let's turn back there and look at this a little bit more because sometimes, sometimes we don't realize God's mercy and his faithfulness 
until the bottom has dropped out of our life. Then we look back and we know God is faithful. He was merciful. And it's at times like that, when our life is in shambles, that we need to take a page out of Jeremiah's poem here. Because he surveys the destruction. Everything he holds dear has been stripped away from him. And where does his heart go? Sometimes we, you and me, elevate things, people, your job, your reputation, your relationships, your career, your decree, your degree, your fill-in-the-blank here, whatever it is for you. Sometimes we elevate those things so high that if we lose them, we're in despair. It's not that those things are bad, but what happens when they go away? Would it crush you? Could you endure? Jeremiah had lost everything, not some of his relationships, all of them. Not some of his possessions, all of them. Where does his mind go? Well, let's look again at Jeremiah as he recalls to mind in the midst of his suffering. What does he call to mind? He says in verse 20 of chapter 3, Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope that the Lord's loving kindness never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. My friends, seek the Lord when you are struggling in life because he's enough. He is enough. David put it this way, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The writer of Psalm 73 says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength in all I ever need. Jeremiah put it this way in verse 24, the Lord is my portion. You gotta remember, he is your portion. This word portion is used to describe something that belongs to, to someone. You belong to God. He is your portion. Jeremiah is saying, Yahweh is all I have left. Everything else is gone. All I have is God, and he's all I need. He is my portion. Jesus is your portion. If you have submitted to him, you have repented of your sins, you have Put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jesus is your portion. He's all that you need. He is enough. Even if it all goes away, you have Christ, your forever friend, your Savior, your brother, your eternal God. His love never ceases. His mercies never fail. Christ is enough if everything else goes away. The third takeaway is that it's okay to mourn. It's okay to mourn. This is an entire book of the Bible dedicated and given to mourning and grief, to sorrow. You're gonna have to endure hardship in your life, either because of your sin, because of someone else's sin against you, or because of life in a fallen world, you're going to have to endure hardship. Mourning 
and grief and sadness, crying, those are okay. There's a time for that. The Holy Spirit instructs us in Romans 12, 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. He says, weep with those who weep. Part of learning to grieve and mourn is part of being compassionate to others in need. Learning to grieve alongside those who are hurting. And our example here is Christ. Isaiah describes Jesus as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He wept when Lazarus died. He wept over Jerusalem while everybody's celebrating at the triumphal entry. He weeps over Jerusalem who will eventually put him on the cross and have to be judged yet again as the Romans will come in and level Jerusalem a second time. Jesus knows that and he weeps. The writer of Hebrews says of Christ, in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Christ was filled with grief from time to time, but he allowed his grief to fuel his compassion and his love. It was out of his compassion and his love that he healed. It was out of his compassion and his love that he went to the cross, as sorrowful as he was. He didn't wallow in his grief, and neither do you need to do that. You don't need to wallow in your depression. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Sorrow may last to the night, but for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So although we, we, in our suffering, in the suffering of those around us, we grieve, we sorrow, we have sorrow, we mourn, the good news is that in the Spirit, we don't mourn as those who have no hope because we have a hope. His name is Christ. We have a hope in a promise-keeping God who loves us and gave himself up for us. So in the same way, Jeremiah looked the character of God to find his hope in the midst of his mourning, we do the same. But it's okay to mourn and grieve. And that leads us to the final truth. Final truth, and it is never abandon prayer. Never abandon prayer. A survey of this book shows that Jeremiah, in his midst of his lament, in the midst of his mourning, in the midst of his grieving, never gave up on prayer. Verse, chapter 1, verse 11, he says, See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. Verse 20, O Lord, I am distressed and greatly troubled, he says. Chapter 3, verse 8, he cries out to the Lord for deliverance. 11 verses in 355 to 66, he prays over and over again, for the Lord's deliverance, for the Lord's mercy. Final 22-verse poem in here is just one long prayer to God. So no matter how bad it was, no matter how great the sorrow, Jeremiah never gave up on prayer. No matter how bad it might get for you, whatever it is, never give up on prayer. And that's the power, my friends, that's the power of knowing the God of the Bible. The power of marinating yourself in God's word is you know who God is. So read the Gospels. Get to know your Savior. He's compassionate. He is loving. 
He is full of mercy. That's the power of knowing the God of the Bible is that you can go to him at any point knowing that his steadfast love never ceases, knowing that his compassions never fail, knowing that his faithfulness is great and that his ear is always open to his children. You can always cry out to him. He will hear you. He always answers his prayer, your prayer. Not always the way you want, but he always answers. That's a promise. And as we've learned, God always keeps his promises. So no matter how bad it gets, you can always cry out to God and pray. But maybe you're not in Christ. Maybe you're here tonight and you've been following the world. You are on the broad road to destruction. Maybe you haven't hit bottom yet, but it's coming. Maybe you think and you're worried that you've screwed up so much, you've been so bad that you don't know how to get back from it. You don't know how to fix it. Well, you can't botch it more than the Israelites botched it. You can't. God's mercy is greater than that. The Israelites messed up royally, but when they cried out for mercy, God answered them. He delivered them. He kept his promise. He brought them back. He will keep his promise and rule and reign with them. So you can cry out to God for repentance. Ask that he would forgive you, not based on your goodness, your good works, but because of Christ. Put your faith in Jesus, and the moment that you do that, you will join his family. The moment that you do that, he will be your God, and you will be a part of his people forever. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you are a God who answers prayers. We're thankful that you are a God who will hear us when we cry out to you. Lord, we recognize and we are thankful for the fact that you always, always keep your promises. You never lie. You are a faithful God. Lord, so I pray for any here that are under your wrath because judgment is coming. I pray that you would soften their heart to understand the gospel. I pray that you would save them, you'd soften their heart, you'd penetrate their heart. Lord, I pray for those of us that are in Christ, Lord, that we have a promise of resurrection. We have a promise that you will never leave us or forsake us because you are a promise-keeping God. Lord, I pray that um, as we leave today, Lord, that we glorify you in the way that we live our life in light of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.